This program is made possible by the members and donors to the show. For details, visit the membership tab at bestoftheleft.com. Now, welcome to the award-winning Best of the Left podcast. Look up today from the Young Turks, the Tom Hartman Program, Counterspin, the Majority Report, MarkFiore.com, Comedian Lee Camp, and Jim Hightower. Some good news for environmentalists at last. The EPA unveiled a proposal today that would sharply limit some of the pollutants in our automobile tailpipe emissions. Uh, those in particular are uh, sulfur and also nitrogen oxide. Sulfur will be cut by 60% from current levels, nitrogen oxides by 80% from current levels. Uh, now, this seems like a good thing, you would imagine. Cleaner air for everybody. We all have to breathe the air. If you're poor, if you're rich, breathe the same air. Um, but some people do have a problem with this. Every time there's new regulations on emissions, uh, you can expect that the Petroleum Institute's chief lobbyist is going to come out and give a statement. He's worried, and he wants to, to forestall this from happening by saying that these regulations could increase the cost of gas from six to nine cents. Uh, the APA says that it would probably be more like a penny, although apparently that's what they say every time. Um, but yeah, so that, that's happening. We also would have the benefits of uh, billions of dollars in health care benefits by 2030 because of less smog and soot in the air although you do have to balance that with paying $130 for the cost of your vehicle by 2025, which is like the cost of undercoating or something, I guess. Um, so there's some costs to this, but there's certainly some benefits. So a couple of things here. Number one, big credit to the Obama administration for pushing this forward. Mm-hmm. You know, I often complain that they're not doing enough about climate change, but here's some substantive action they're taking, and it makes a good deal of difference. Now, the second point I want to make is, uh, apparently, this would reduce sulfur in the gasoline by more than 60% and reduce nitrogen oxides by 80%. Yeah. Okay. And we have that option, and we're debating it. Yeah, right. Right? Because it would like, cost a lot. Yeah. So there's literally people who are saying, no, let's keep 60% more sulfur in our gasoline and 80% more nitrogen oxides. Mm-hmm. I mean, let alone the climate change aspect of it, all the, you know, the pollution and the poison yeah. we're putting in the atmosphere... And apparently we can do it for about a penny or whatever, let's say five cents per gallon by 2080 or whatever the numbers are, right? And am I willing to pay $130 more for a car in the year 2025? Which I think I would pay $130 more anyway, right? I know. Like, <laughs> you will also. Also, yeah. right? I know it's on top, right? Yeah. If, if they're even running with gasoline at that age. Exactly. That price. <laughs> and, and I don't know if you guys have kids or if you care about your own health, and I care less about my health than I do about my kids' health. I don't care about your kids. Okay, <laughs> no, that's fair. That's very fair. But to me, if you said, okay, your kids are going to have less sulfur and less nitrogen oxide in the air, but you're going to have to pay $130 more for your car in 2025, uh-huh. yeah. I take that deal. Yeah. Well, maybe you're missing the point that it's the sulfur and the nitrogen oxides. That makes your car sound really cool when you rev it. Oh, you don't want a new car. And we wouldn't want to hurt the oil and gas companies. No, totally. That's that's very fair. They're not making enough money. Uh, But interesting little fact, I don't know that this is actually true, but this is what the EPA is saying. This one change, you know, just cutting the amount of pollutants in our gas right now, would have the same long-term effect as taking 33 million cars off the road with the current system that we have. That's huge. That's mind-blowing. It is mind-blowing. Now, this is the one area that Obama's done a very good job in in the environment, which is reducing emissions. And by the way, California's already done this. So anybody who's, ah, you can't do it and still be profitable, well, actually, no, we can do it. We already did do it. And you're still incredibly... Has, have the car companies stopped selling cars 
in California? <laughs> no, in uh, fact, most brands still sell the most cars of every class of car. The most cars they sell in the United States are sold in California. We've been on the run, driving in the sun, looking out for number one. California, here we come, right back where we started from. Well, hustlers, grab your guns, your shadow weighs a ton, driving down the 101. California, here we come, right back where we started from. California. Todd in Anoka, Minnesota, listening on AM 950, Minnesota's progressive voice. Hey, Todd, what's up? Hi, Tom. Thanks for taking the call. Uh, the reason for my call is I'm a guy who's been around for over a half century, and I believe I've witnessed uh, the global warming and the effects of it in my lifetime. And it, what I'm concerned with is how it seems that we've allowed the conversation to change from global warming to climate change, the way that it's being referenced. And if you look at the the brief history of it, for so long, people denied that there was global warming. And then when the preponderance of evidence showed that there was global warming, now they're saying, well, it's just climate change. And we've, we've been through climate changes before. Right. And, and my response to they in fact, they love to say, we've been through periods of warming of the, of the globe before. But I guess my point is, we've never been through periods of warming when we had over 6 billion people on Earth and 30,000 airplane flights a day and 800 million automobiles and coal-fired power plants and all this myriad of things that add more carbon to the air. Well, and the times that we have had really significant, like 5 degrees Celsius warmings before, they've been called extinctions. Well, I just wish we wouldn't allow them to make that change, to go from yeah. global warming to kind you know, of somebody called, down to climate change. Yeah, somebody called the program a week or so ago and said, you know, where did this climate change come from? Why, why aren't we calling it global warming? And I said at the time that I thought that it came out of the scientific community, that they wanted to be a little more precise. And uh, uh, several listeners pointed me to links, uh, and you can read the threads over on our blogs at TomHartman.com pointed me to links uh, that showed that this was actually a suggestion of Frank Luntz's. Well, I, I believe that completely. In fact, I think that's probably why the scientific community is making that change, is they're just trying to soften it enough so they believe they'll be listened to a little bit more. But I, I think we need to be real real serious about it and use yeah. the words global warming. Rather I think we need to use the words global disaster and we need to talk about extinctions. And, and I'm serious talking about extinctions. The last major extinction on Earth, the the not not the last one, but the the second to the last. The last one was the the end of the Jurassic period, um, and that was when 65 million years ago a meteorite hit the Earth in near where what is now Cancun, left a giant crater crater, which is that that basin there off the coast of of Mexico that leads into the Gulf of Mexico, and that crater. Excuse me. That 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 meteor uh, killed roughly sixty percent of all life on Earth, including virtually all the dinosaurs, with the exception of some of the holdovers like the alligators and things, and some of the smaller ones, and and apparently birds, which came out of dinosaurs. But the extinction that preceded it was—it's uh, called the Permian extinction, and it happened two hundred fifty million years ago, and. 
up until the 1990s, nobody knew what caused it. The assumption was always that it had been a meteor strike like the other extinctions were either meteor strikes or massive tectonic activity, you know, changing of continents, breaking up of continents and things, blowing all kinds of lava out into the atmosphere. And, and nobody really got what caused the Permian extinction. And there's a brilliant documentary over on BBC about this, that the Permian extinction was caused, first off, it had two, there were two killers. It, the Permian extinction, first of all, is important because 95% of all species, 95% of all life on Earth vanished. It was a period of at least um, 80,000 years of the planet being virtually sterile and tens of millions of years that it took for the planet to come back and then, you know, 65 million years of, uh, you know, for the dinosaurs to fully evolve uh, before the next strike happened. And so what caused the permanent extinction? It's been, been this big question. Well, it turns out that there was this area that are known as the Siberian Traps, this northern Siberia, hundreds of square miles that just kind of opened up as a giant volcano, or, or not volcanic activity, it was called sheet lava, just these giant flows of lava out onto the ground. And, and in the process, released so much gaseous material, so much particulate material, and in particular so much carbon dioxide that it warmed the planet five degrees Celsius. Now, there's a pretty, there's been a strong consensus that that's what happened ever since the early 90s, you know, when they first really found the evidence, evidence of this up in Siberia. And, uh, but the question has been, five degrees Celsius is enough to kill off 60% of the life on Earth, but not 95%. It's not enough to basically sterilize the planet. Um, and, and just to put this in context, by the way, the scientists with the IPCC are suggesting that if we keep on the course that we're on, and nobody thinks we will, we're not that insane, but if we continue to pollute at the level we are, by the year 2100, we will have raised the temperature of the Earth 5 to 6 degrees Celsius. So just keep that in mind as I'm telling you this story. So the Siberian traps blew out all this lava, and that lava and the gases from it, the carbon dioxide in particular, raised the temperature of the Earth by 5 degrees Celsius. But like I said, that's not enough to kill everything. So what was it that killed everything? Well, it turned out that uh, along the along the coasts of all you know on all of our oceans, along that area where the land becomes sea, where the land subducts under the water, where the land goes down under the water, or the water covers the land, you've got the most the areas of greatest biodiversity on the planet, and because of their edges, you know, edges are always places of great diversity and activity. And you've got a lot of life, particularly vegetable life, you know, uh, algae, giant mats of algae, all kinds of green stuff and, and little tiny plankton and all kinds, and the animal life as well, the, 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 the zoo, whatever it's called, the zooplankton. And, and this stuff has a life cycle, and part of that life cycle is it dies, and when it dies, it settles to the bottom. As it settles to the bottom, it's rotting, and as it's rotting, it's producing methane gas, you know, is the stuff that you smell when you smell rotting vegetation. It's how cars, cows fart. It's how all of us fart, actually. It's methane, and methane is also known as natural gas. So anyhow, these, these things are rotting, and they're sinking to the bottom, and as they sink to the bottom and they rot, the methane that is released at high pressures, hundreds of feet under the ocean, uh, get locked up in these crystalline lattices of water that is at or just slightly below the freezing temperature but doesn't freeze because the pressure is so high. But when it combines with the methane, it actually forms these like little boxes around the methane crystals and it, f it forms these giant sheets of a slurry kind of ice that are called methane hydrate crystals. 
and hundreds of trillions of tons of them along the coasts of all the continents. And they're there and they're frozen because they're in an area that's maybe only 60, 70 feet of depth where above that the methane would turn into a gas and bubble up to the surface. And below that, uh, the, the, the vegetable material doesn't, you know, no longer decomposes and produces methane. So it's a very specific layer that you find all around the world. And there's all this methane hydrate. And the oil companies have been exploring how to suck this stuff up because it's almost pure natural gas mixed with water. And it's easy to separate water from natural gas. And there's been a couple of attempts to do so. And so anyhow, one of the things that they learned when they were in the late 90s, when they were drilling for methane hydrate crystals off the coast of England, one of the things that they learned was that this stuff was really, really rich in what's called carbon-12, a form of carbon that is an absolute signature of rapidly decomposing, decomposing plant matter. About the same time, a group of, uh, of uh, geologists who were looking at the Permian extinction in Antarctica, in South Africa, and in Greenland found that in the Permian extinction layers, that 80,000-year layer, about 40,000 years into it, long after the Siberian traps had stopped erupting, but while the planet was still five degrees warmer, because it takes a long time for that CO2 to go out of the atmosphere, about 40,000 years into this, there was a second giant warming of the planet. And that second giant warming of the planet warmed the planet by an additional five degrees, which sterilized the planet, which killed 95% of all life, because we were now at 10 degrees Celsius of warming, and that is enough to kill 95% of all life. And... At the very time that that happened, they expected to see the signature of a, of a meteorite hitting, you know, a, a large amount of iridium all around the planet. Instead, what they found was carbon-12. So the question was, how the hell did carbon-12, which is the product of, of centuries of plant decomposition, end up in the atmosphere in such massive amounts that it's buried 40,000 years into the layer of the Permian mass extinction? Turns out that that 5 degrees Celsius temperature increase in the planet was enough over that 40,000 years to warm the oceans to the point where that layer of methane hydrate crystals warmed up and all those crystals started melting, releasing the gas, gas bubbled up into the air. Methane is 25 times more potent than carbon dioxide and it's a greenhouse gas. And so for the next 40,000 years, it raised the temperature 10 degrees Celsius, and that was the Permian extinction. And that is what we are doing to ourselves with all of this talk about clean coal and all this nonsense about, you know, gas, natural gas being a clean energy source and all that. Todd, sorry to go off on you, but and, and, and that we ran out of time for you to respond. Thank you for the call. Here at Best of the Left, supporting the good works of others is our entire reason for existence. Since the beginning of 2006, I've been making this show to highlight what I consider to be some of the best of the truly liberal media. Now I'm working on several ways to promote the best progressive activism around. Ruminate for a moment on whether you enjoy this show or consider its goals to be worthwhile, and if you do, please consider supporting this work by becoming a member for as little as $5 a month or even $55 a year at the membership tab at bestoftheleft.com. It's the donations of members that allow the show to continue and continue to improve thanks so much for your support
It took tens of thousands of people marching in Washington to get nightly newscasts to devote just a handful of words to protests against construction of the Keystone XL pipeline. But the State Department's recent draft assessment of the pipeline's environmental impact got a mention on one show, and it said a lot. Not about the pipeline so much as about corporate media. The roundtable discussion on ABC's This Week on March 3rd was tilted to the right, unsurprisingly. There was a Republican mayor from Utah, a former Bush advisor, and a Wall Street Journal columnist, along with Cokie Roberts and, as the nominal and outnumbered left, Democratic advisor James Carville. At one point, Carville brought up the Keystone Pipeline. But his message was a little hard to follow. He began by saying, I hate to say this, then declared that the State Department's report, quote, probably means that Keystone is going to be built and that the environmental communities will be up in arms, close quote. It's unclear what it was he hated to say, but his actual message seemed to boil down to this. Look, if you're a Democrat and would you believe in science, then if this is the science, that's the science. Of course, there's no reason to accept that a State Department review is the science on anything, which is why we've seen an array of groups issuing critical responses to the report, which argues that the pipeline won't exacerbate climate change because the tar sands are going to be burnt anyway which is not really a scientific analysis, but a political judgment, and a questionable one. But viewers can't hear that point of view in a TV debate, even from the person hired to play the left. President Obama was at two fundraisers in San Francisco. In fact, one of the fundraisers was great. Uh, it's at a home of a well-known uh, environmentalist, uh, Thomas Steyer. He's a hedge fund billionaire and his wife, Kat Taylor, through the fundraiser. But they're very much opposed to the Keystone XL pipeline. Uh, now, of course, Obama does listen to his donors. And at that dinner, for example, they were giving 5000 to $32,400 a person. So uh, at least you had one of the good guys that catch, caught his attention saying, I'm opposed to Keystone Pipeline. So did he listen to him? Well, based on his speech reported by the New York Times, it doesn't appear so. First, the president said, quote, politics of the, of the environment are, quote, tough, meaning, nah, I'm not going to do it. Like, oh, you want me to, you know, get rid not approve the Keystone Pipeline? Totally within Obama's power. The State Department is in charge of that process. It is not Congress. He does not have to consult with the Republicans. Now, it seems like he's about to say that it's good. Listen to this quote. This is encouraging. Usual Obama, right? Quote, we have to break out of this notion that somehow there's a contradiction between us being good stewards of the environment and us growing this economy. They are not a contradiction. We can grow this economy fast and faster if we are seizing the opportunities of the future and not just looking at the energy sources of the past. Well, that sounds great. Okay, right? So, Keystone Pipeline, not going to do it. He then turns around and says, quote, You may be concerned about the temperature of the planet, but it's probably not rising to your number one concern. And if people think, well, that's short-sighted, that's what happens when you're struggling to get by. In other words, 
ah, these are tough economic times. It's not people's top concern. It might be your top concern, but the average working man, the Republicans tell me it's not his top concern. It's not even the Republicans, the corporations, right? The big oil companies want this. this. So what can I do? It's not their top concern. I'm going to have to approve it. I mean, here he is at the home of a fundraiser he actually listens to, who's telling him don't approve it, and he's telling him, do, 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 sending him a clear code. Oh, I'm going to approve it. Believe me on that. Inside, uh, this is the New York Times now, inside Mr. Obama told the donors that the best way to assure environmental action is to send more Democrats to Washington. That's what they always say, right? But the New York Times also reports in that same piece, last month, 17 Democratic senators signed on to an amendment backing construction of the pipeline. That would be the opposite position that progressives want. Included in the group were seven senators from conservative or swing states who face re-election in 2014. Now, wait a minute. You just told me if I elect more Democrats, you're going to do what we want. But at the same time, they just voted. And those 17 Democrats that all those donors gave their money to and, and volunteers worked so hard for and people voted for, didn't do the progressive position. They did the opposite. In fact, the ones you want us to help the most are the ones that are saying, I'm in a tight re-election, so I'm going to screw over progressives. No, you're in a tight re-election. You won by pretending to be a progressive. Maybe you should be a progressive. Maybe that would help you in your election. But no, every single time. Why? Part of the reason is, oh, I'm in a tight election. Nonsense about red states or purple states or conservatives. No, I'm in a tight election. I need the money, Lebowski. These donors are in the minority. The great majority of the donors are corporations and incredibly rich people like the Koch brothers who give so much more political donations. I'm in a tight race, dog. There's no way I can help you. But then why are you telling me to elect Democrats when it's obvious based on their votes from just the last couple of weeks that they're useless? They're going to vote against us anyway. Finally, President Obama says, if we're going to deal with the climate change in a serious way, then we've got to have folks in Congress, even when it's not politically convenient, to talk about it and to advocate for it. But you just told that same audience that it's politically inconvenient at this time. We're in tough economic times. This is not our number one priority. I won't be doing it. So, but wait a minute. You're doing exactly the opposite of what you just said. So why in the world would we help you? If I was the donors, I would have taken my money back. I'd have been like, hey, listen, if you're not going to do... I mean, look, when the banks pay you, you do exactly what they ask you to do. When the oil companies pay you, Mr. Obama, you do exactly what you want them to do. Now, the one-time progressives pay you and say, hey, can you help us with this? You go, oh, no, no, no. Sorry. The environment is a tough issue for us, and people have higher concerns. So it doesn't matter that I'm the sole decision maker in here. I'm going to vote with the conservative and corporatist uh, line anyway. It doesn't matter how many Democrats you elect, because they'll turn on you anyway. Now, if you're a real progressive, I mean, it's one thing voting for Obama when your choices, your other choice, realistically, is Mitt Romney. It's another thing to give him your hard-earned money. I don't care if you're a hedge fund billionaire. I'm sure that you at least put in long hours, right? What are you going to be giving money to this guy for when he basically spits in your face in the fundraiser and says, I'm, you're the one set of donors I definitely will not deliver for? Because given a choice between anything and corporations, President Obama will almost always pick corporations.
people say, uh, Republicans, uh, you know, they, they just deny uh, the idea of man-made climate change. Uh, they're not coming around. Uh, but, you know, Smokey Joe Barton, oh, I should mention, uh, he's a Republican a congressman who uh, sits, is he the chair of uh, the Energy Committee uh, from Texas? He certainly sits on it. He is a Republican. Uh, there's a reason why they call him Smokey Joe, and it's not because he smokes a lot. Uh, it's because he is one of the biggest recipients of uh, fossil fuel lobbying money uh, and carbon-based energy lobbying money of anyone in Congress and uh, has, I don't know if they rate that him, but he would have an A rating. He is going to explain to you exactly why there is some confusion about uh, the science behind climate change, folks. Listen carefully here. Recognize Jim from Texas, Mr. Barton, for five minutes. Thank you. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Um, I don't think it's a secret that I'm a proponent and supporter of the Keystone Pipeline, so it's, it's somewhat redundant for me to ask too many questions. So I would point out, though, that people like me that support hydrocarbon development. Now, you got to say, you got to give it up for him. At least he's being obvious. Now, they call him Smokey Joe, and I don't know if that's written in front of his little uh, placard <laughs> in Congress as he's holding these hearings on Keystone. But uh, so, you know, credit for that. And he's, he's going he's gonna to put up his best argument. Go ahead. Don't deny that the climate is changing. I think you could have an honest difference of opinion on what's causing that change uh, without automatically uh, being either all in that it's it's all because of man mankind or it's it's all just natural i think there's a divergence of the point isn't whether or not you can have a difference of opinion about this that's not what the difference of opinion is about the difference of opinion is am i going to listen to the vast majority the 95% of climate scientists around the world who are saying that this is man made or not that's the that's that's the opinion. That's the the the, diff, the the binary choice here. We can all have opinions as whether or not this is that. But it's just basically this is not like I you know I prefer the Red Sox. I believe I prefer the Texas Rangers. This is whether or not I'm going to believe the scientists or decide not to. And then my rationales for both of those. Maybe the opinion here is to not listen to the facts. Yeah, but that's not, that's like a predisposition. It's not even an opinion. I'm going to think that science is bunk. But wait a second, let's let him talk. Evidence. Uh, I would point out that if you're a believer in the Bible, uh, one would have to say the Great Flood is an example of climate change. And that certainly wasn't because mankind had overdeveloped uh, hydrocarbon energy. All right, so there you have it. <laughs> Because one of the things, in my opinion, that I, you know, I'm skeptical about what the scientists say, because if you happen to believe in the Bible like I do, in the Great Flood, when Noah had his ark, uh, that was probably climate change. It, the climate changed. And I don't think that was because people were driving too many cars. The, the proof is right there. It's in a book. It's, I mean, <laughs> he's got such a almost Cheshire grin on his face. Though. Like, I love like, like, yeah, he's the getting, pure cynicism. I can't believe I'm saying this. And what I really can't believe is it's going to work. <laughs> it's going to work with my constituency. It's total like not bad work if you can find it. Yeah, I can't <laughs> believe I get away with this.
I, I almost feel like, am I mocking myself by saying, by even sort of being crit- like trying to analyze that statement? Am I, am, I, am I mocking myself by saying, you know, let's just grant, let's stipulate the great flood happened. And that, that arc did exist. <laughs> and let's stipulate the arc did exist. I know that they may have found it somewhere in the who knows. And that knows one of that. every animal. And was... so we one of every animal's on. And let's just stipulate that it was climate change. Obviously, if you have a massive flood, the climate has changed in some respects. Um, is it possible? Is it possible, I would ask Joe Barton, if we were actually to have a serious conversation about this where he wasn't going like, <laughs> come on, Sam. <laughs> Not really. I mean, come on now. Um, is it possible that it was just sort of more localized than maybe the people writing this story in the Bible were aware of at the time? Like maybe, maybe the phone lines were down and they didn't know that, you know, in other parts of the world, this wasn't happening, and they just assumed. Like, when they referred to the world, they were really just talking about a very small region that may have flooded. Well, Sam, that's your opinion, and we could never know. Actually, he'd probably say, well, Sam, I can't believe you thought about it that much. <laughs> well, Sam, I am mighty disappointed in you. You, what are you doing? Don't you, supposed, you, don't you got some Twitter wars to fight? Are you supposed to be an educated modern man, Sam? You know yeah. David Cross for yeah, crying yeah. out loud. My God, what an, what an a-hole you just made yourself look like taking me seriously, Sam. <laughs> God. part where you United Statesians come in. I need a pipeline. And the Enviro hippies on the west and east coasts won't have it. So I'm headed south. The Keystone XL pipeline will get Tarzan's Timmy all the way down to Port Arthur, Texas, where there happens to be oil tankers aplenty. But don't worry, all this oil is for you, not for export. Promise! Never mind the tankers. 
to do to make this pipeline happen is convince President Obama and John Kerry, which is why my oily Alberta friends are spending hundreds of thousands of dollars on lobbyists who happen to have worked on the Obama and Kerry campaigns. See, this isn't about oil company profits. I'm just trying to bring jobs to the United States. Jobs in the hundreds of thousands, the thousands, the hundreds, or maybe 35 permanent jobs. But jobs and spills? What could possibly go wrong? Why, ExxonMobil just won the Green Cross for safety medal. Never mind the spill in Arkansas, or the spill in the Yellowstone River, or that spill in the Kalamazoo River, or the spill in Minnesota, or the spill in, well, those don't matter. What matters is, I'm Tar Sands Timmy, and I need a pipeline. Your friend to the north needs to get south. Anchors away! As an anti-consumerism advocate, I'd like to encourage you to shop less, don't buy things you don't need, and only buy the necessities from local, independently owned businesses. That said, if you don't take this good advice, then at least there's a way to shop that helps support this show at the same time. Simply click through to Amazon.com, just one of the major companies under constant boycott by one liberal cause or another, from the banner posted at bestoftheleft.com. Better yet, click through just once and bookmark that link to use every time you shop. Your shopping experience will be identical to normal. It will cost you nothing extra, but 7 to 8% of the cost of your order in soulless corporate blood money will be siphoned off and used to tremendously support the production of this show. Thanks for doing the right thing, whatever you consider that to be. The rupture of ExxonMobil's tar sands oil pipeline in Mayflower, Arkansas, was an environmental disaster, but it also revealed the continuing catastrophe that has happened to freedom of the press in the United States. From the beginning of the spill, federal and local officials have allowed the oil giant to control media access to the disaster area it was responsible for creating. Radio reporter Michael Hiblin told Mother Jones that when he and a small group of journalists tried to cover the Arkansas Attorney General's tour of the site, sheriff's deputies started yelling that all the media people had to leave, that ExxonMobil had decided they don't want you here, you have to leave. Local TV news director Nick Genty told Media Bistro that Exxon is running the show at the site. When we try to get information from local law enforcement, they direct us to the PR from Exxon. Another news director says Exxon has only allowed media in the impacted neighborhood for guided tours during times of their choosing. And trying to cover the spill for Inside Climate News, reporter Lisa Song was told by an ExxonMobil spokesperson, you've been asked by security to leave. If you don't, you'll be arrested for criminal trespass. Meanwhile, up in the air, the Federal Aviation Administration declared a no-fly zone over the site that ExxonMobil controlled access to. Well, this is not a new phenomenon. BP was allowed to harass reporters covering the damage the company did to the Gulf of Mexico, as was Exxon during its 1989 fouling of Alaska's coastline. One has to wonder, though, why this particular category of perpetrator is allowed to control access to its own crime scene.
My favorite quote for the day, John Kenneth Galbraith. The modern conservative is engaged in one of man's oldest exercises in moral philosophy. That is, the search for a superior moral justification for selfishness. Right. So how is that being played out in our world today? Well, let's start with ExxonMobil, one of the most profitable companies in the world that regularly pays no U.S. income tax. They had a pretty horrible tar sands oil spill in Arkansas last month. Most people heard bits and pieces of the story, but here's what you probably have not heard from the corporate media. First off, you got a glance of the ruptured like uh, the pipeline rupture and a spill and the spill because of citizen bloggers and journalists like Drew Barnes who posted a video of it on YouTube. But you haven't seen much coverage from the air of this, have you? That's because, just like with the BP Halliburton blowout in the Gulf, the FAA imposed a no-fly zone over the oil spill. You're not allowed to see what's going on. ExxonMobil has even hired local police for security, and they're doing a pretty good job of keeping reporters away, according to Mother Jones, reporting that documented numerous instances of people being threatened with arrest for just trying to ask questions or take pictures on site. Monday nights on C-SPAN. Second, with all the money and profits from that oil pipeline, ExxonMobil doesn't have to pay into the federal fund to clean up oil disasters, including this one. Why? Because the stuff in that pipeline isn't oil, in quotes. It's that stuff that the press refers to as tar sands oil from Canada, but legally is known as diluted... How do you say this, Shana? Do you know? Or Jim? Is it bitumen? Bitumen? B-I-T-U-M-E-N. It's one of those words I've been reading since I was a little kid. I never heard said out loud. Let's let's say it's bitu- bit, bitumen, whatever it is. It's basically it's slurried coal. It's shale, right? Related to coal. And according to a 1980 law pushed through and passed by our bought-off Congress, that stuff that comes from Canada, that diluted bitumen, not being oil is not subject to the tiny taxes that are imposed on regular oil and regular pipelines to pay into a fund to help cover the cost of spills from regular oil from regular pipelines. So even though this is worse, it's free. Another reason by the uh, diluted bitumen, a.k.a. tar sands oil, It'll be coming down the Keystone XL to refine it in the Texas coast and then ship the refined diesel they extract to it from it to England and Mexico and China and Brazil. We, by the way, will get to keep all the poisons left over from the refining process right here in the United States. We get to pay for all the cancers from them. Expect Cancer Alley down south to grow substantially. Finally, to add insult to injury, we get one of the more heavily oil industry-funded members of Congress, Oklahoma Republican Congressman Mark Wayne Mullen, who tells us this. I think Exxon should be, should be actually patted on the back for the way they handled this. Right. And this clueless congressional newbie, repeats the lie that if the Keystone Pipeline carrying more of these tar sands oil to the Gulf Coast is finished, it'll somehow reduce our dependence on Middle Eastern oil. Trying to tie the wonders of ExxonMobil to the bombing in Boston 
This fool actually said, quote, I mean, would we rather buy oil from the Middle East that sponsors the acts that we saw, like at the marathon that we just saw yesterday? End quote. I guess the congressman got out ahead of John King and CNN and knowing who blew up the pressure cookers in Boston. But aside from that stupidity, the pipeline will not reduce our dependence on foreign oil a bit because all that slurry from Canada is going to very, very profitable refineries on the Gulf Coast where they can export the refined gas and diesel overseas. Last year, our nation's number one export. It was not TVs or jeans or computers. We invented all those things, but we don't make them here anymore. Number one export of the United States of America, gasoline and diesel fuel, refined oil products. Yep, the big oil companies are exporting gas and diesel from the U.S. like crazy, keeping the prices here high for us and the profits for them very, very high. And they want to export even more and let us keep the wastes and the cancers and the oil spill risks. We've been scammed. From the 1980 law exempting the oil companies from paying into cleanup funds for Canadian tar sands oil, to blocking our press from covering their spills, to buying and selling our members of Congress like they were cattle or sheep. All of this. Now, they could just, just think about this for a minute. This oil industry is doing all of this stuff to keep alive a 19th century fuel. This is the 21st century, for goodness sake. A 19th century fuel that is destroying our planet. It's time to leave behind fossil fuels altogether. Portugal just produced 70% of all their power needs from renewables. We can do that, too. We're still the nation to put a man on the moon. We invented the transistor, the integrated circuit. I remember when it happened. We have led the world for centuries. If we could just get the bought and paid for politicians out of the way and get our press to actually cover the horrors of tar sands oil and the reality of climate change, we just may be able to once again have that John F. Kennedy vision of being the city on the hill. Yeah, I know Reagan used the phrase, too, but he was quoting Kennedy. We should even take a lesson from the dozens of nations that have nationalized their oil. And, like Norway, use that money to send their kids to college. Can you imagine? Hey, we got a lot of oil under the ground in the United States. It belongs to us. We're going to send our kids to school with it. You can pump it out and make a little profit on it, but it's our oil. They do that up in Texas, or up in Alaska, you know. They got this permanent fund. It's got millions and millions of dollars in it. Every year, when Sarah Palin was governor, every year she sent out a check for $2,000, not just to every voter, but to three-year-olds, six-week-olds. People would try to have their baby the day before the checks went out so they'd get last year's check plus next year's check. I mean, come on. If the Socialist Republic of Alaska can do it, why can't the rest of the... I mean, you know, if, if a socialist like Sarah Palin can pull that off and be proud of it, it's time for us to step up and speak out 
and say, you know, the oil industry does not represent us. It does not own us. And we are not going to let them destroy our planet or our country or our way of life or our lives or perhaps most importantly, and all of those things are very important, but the thing that can influence all the rest of them, our form of government. We're not, we're not going to let them do that anymore. We are going to show up and we are going to speak out and we are going to hold them accountable. You've been noticing how long it's been taking the Obama administration to come to a decision about the Keystone XL pipeline. The pressure is enormous. You can add to it. Go to 350.org and become part of the solution. I'm sure you heard about the Exxon oil spill in Mayflower, Arkansas the other day. The original Mayflower ship explored new territory. And in a way, so is this oil spill. Because it's one of the first tar sands oil spills in the U.S. And we're learning how hard it is to clean up this I love learning new things, don't you? So the heads of these oil companies, I'll call them psychopathic faced greed monkeys, or PBGMs for short, make billions of dollars a year for their companies. These companies also get subsidies from the taxpayers to the tune of anywhere between 10 and 50 billion dollars. Then, when asked to pay taxes back to the society they've pillaged, the PBGMs look at us as if we've asked them to spend a weekend bathing the homeless. According to Citizens for Tax Justice, between 2008 and 2010, ExxonMobil paid a tax rate of 0.4%. That's less taxes than Snoop Dogg paid on his medicinal marijuana stash. Then when they spill oil across a town like Mayflower, they do a great job of pretending to clean it up. With big paper towels and funny hats and hoses, they put on quite a little show. And why do I consider it a show? Because there's a deep, dark secret about oil that the PBGMs really don't want you to know. You can't clean up oil. You can't do it. Not really. Not in the real world. Not when it's mixed with water and soil and otters. It's it's it's, it's impossible. You can clean up some of it. You can you can push it around a little. You can get it out of people's faces, but it ain't going to magically subtract itself from the water and land. So what Exxon and BP do is they make it look like they're cleaning up, just like it looks like that magician ripped the head off the bunny rabbit, just like it looks like that guy punted that football across the highway and into a basketball hoop in that viral video that got 12,743,000 more views than this video will ever get. Did any of those things really happen? Nope. But it's all part of the show, my friends. Exxon should win an Oscar for best performance by a corporation in a dark, dark comedy. And even though they put on a show, they would prefer you don't see the spill at all. 
And this is why BP held the media back from the Gulf of Mexico, even going to the trouble of hiding oil-covered dolphin carcasses, which is really a, a, a specialty skill. Not many colleges even allow you to major in that anymore. It's, it's got to be a labor of love. And Exxon has fought the media back from this news spill. They even went so far as to get the FAA to declare a no-fly zone over the spill. You know, there were only three other events in our history that were so gruesome, the authorities wouldn't even allow planes to fly overhead. 9-11, the eviction of Occupy, and last year's Adam Sandler film, That's My Boy. But luckily, Exxon's now telling us this wasn't an oil spill. They're telling us they spilled something else called bitumen, which sounds like how Snoop Dogg would describe his weed. But no, bitumen is chemicals mixed with Canadian tar sands. It's even more toxic than oil. And the Koch brothers in TransCanada and Exxon and so many others are salivating at the idea of pumping this across the entire continental U.S. in the new tar sands pipeline, a.k.a. the Keystone XL, a.k.a. the nail in the coffin for climate change. A rupture from the Keystone pipeline would make this current spill look like wiping dog off the bottom of your shoe. Bitumen is a vicious mother and it's not going to be cleaned up by a quicker picker-upper. Wait a second, I thought we were talking about oil. How do we get to climate change? A good person to ask about that would be NASA scientist James Hansen, who has told us for years that the tar sands contain twice the amount of carbon dioxide emitted by global oil use in our entire history. And if we fully exploit them, the amount of carbon dioxide in the atmosphere would be truly catastrophic, killing off between 20 and 50 percent of the planet's species. And for those of you who think you don't care about this, it would also probably ruin your bachelor party. I hope that celebratory blow-up doll also works as a raft because your town will likely be underwater. So what can you do about this other than protest the Keystone XL and throw things at your TV? Well, there's actions going on everywhere, every day. My friend Ed Fallon in Iowa has a cool one. He's doing a march for climate action across the entire United States. Some say marches never do anything. I point them to the civil rights marches and the Vietnam War marches and the march that Snoopy does every Thanksgiving day down the streets of Manhattan to raise money for erectile dysfunction research. Of, of course, it, it was revealed last year that someone just forgot to inflate that part of Snoopy's body. So, so, so maybe that example isn't the best. Anyway, you can learn more about the march at climatemarch.org. And tell the Keystone Pipeline to go itself before it all of us. My windows kept out the cloudy wine And downstairs sat a couple having a fight Well, history is bound to repeat A thousand kids trying to sleep when they grow up, they'll march in the street, they'll march in the street, they'll march in the street. I like the word gobsmacked because it sounds like what it means. Something completely astonishing, so unbelievable that it smacks you. For example, on April 3rd, ExxonMobil was scrambling to cope with thousands of barrels of tar sands oil oozing out of a ruptured pipeline in the town of Mayflower, Arkansas.
The spreading toxic contamination from the oil giant's pipeline was awful, but hardly surprising, given Exxon's long record of reckless disregard for our environment, people, and communities. So the gobsmacking news of April 3rd was not that America's most profitable corporation had yet another spewing disaster on its hands, but that something called the National Safety Council awarded its Green Cross for Safety Medal that very day to, guess who, the contaminator of Mayflower. Presenting the award during an event in Houston, NSC's president declared with a straight face, "It is evident that Exxon Mobil is committed to excellence in safety, security, health, and environmental performance." Good grief! While Mayflower was covered in Exxon oil, Exxon was being covered with environmental praise. It was like giving a bird protection award to a smiling cat with feathers still stuck in its whiskers. What exactly is the National Safety Council? An industry front. In fact, the green in the Green Cross award could refer to the color of money. For both the Exxon Corporation and its foundation were top donors to NSC last year. Indeed, the oil corporation has not one but two representatives on NSC's board of directors, making Exxon the awarder as well as the awardee of the Green Cross. Not to single it out, past awardee Dow Chemical is also a board member. This is Jim Hightower saying, apparently NSC's paramount safety concern is for the PR image of its corporate funders. Hey, this is Lee Camp. I hope you've enjoyed having my Moment of Clarity rants pumped into your skulls. If you have, you would almost definitely love my free Moment of Clarity backstage podcast, where I discuss the topics of the day. You know, the little things like the corporate raping and pillaging of our world. I also have on fun, awesome guests like this lady. My name is Janine Garofalo. This guy. Hi, I'm John Oliver. Even sometimes this guy. This is Greg Palace, and I've got my zipper caught in Moments of Clarity. Free at LeeCamp.net, iTunes, Stitcher, or the Android app. Plus, there's a Moment of Clarity book for those of you who thought, "I love Moment of Clarity, but I hate how I can't lick it." Well, now you can. The Moment of Clarity book and ebook. Get it at LeeCamp.net or on most e-reader platforms. And remember, keep fighting and stay angry. Yesterday was the final day for public comments on the Keystone XL pipeline. Over a million public comments were submitted. Presumably, most of those against the granting of a permit by the State Department and the Obama administration for this pipeline to cross the Canadian-American border. One of those comments came from the EPA, and it rated as a final parting shot. Remember now, the State Department was charged with drafting an environmental impact statement, a DEIS, which basically found, according to the State Department, that the Keystone XL pipeline would have minor. Effects on the environment. The EPA, the Environmental Protection Agency, I guess one could say in the government, the real professionals on that accord, 
in their public comment, rated the adequacy of the State Department's draft environmental impact statement as having insufficient information. The agency could have rated the adequacy of the impact statement in three different ways. Adequate, insufficient information, or inadequate. Like I said, they rated it insufficient information. They said that the DEIS's attempt to do a life cycle analysis of the pipeline's emissions, which found that emissions from the oil sands crude, basically a form of bitumen, would be 81% higher than regular crude. And the EPA noted that if the GHG intensity of oil sands crude is not reduced over a 50-year period, the additional CO2 from the oil sands crude transported by the pipeline could be as much as 935 million metric tons. In other words, saying that the um, State Department's uh, study was uh, grossly underestimating the potential for additional CO2. It also said that it was that it disagreed with the State Department's assessment that the oil sands would surely come out of the ground, that the, excuse me, the tar sands oil would surely come out of the ground even if the Keystone Pipeline was not built. The EPA said that your conclusion is not as complete and accurate as possible. It says that you used outdated modeling and the expense and infeasibility of rail shipping as an alternative to Keystone both need to be considered. It also said uh, that the State Department's analysis did not take seriously or accurately portray the difficulty that is involved in a cleanup in the event that this tar sands oil has some form of leak or spill. It also addressed uh, the issue of threats to drinking water as the pipeline wound its way down uh, from north to south through the United States. So the EPA got their last licks in, too, as did over a million people. There was a concerted effort by environmental groups to get these comments out there. A million people is a lot of people to comment on anything that involves other than just sitting on, sitting on their couch and staring at their TV. So hopefully this will have an impact... Uh, don't hold your breath, but, uh, hope springs eternal. I just knocked on wood. This is George from South Florida. Um, I don't know if this is uh, an activist call to action as much as uh, just a request from you to either maybe uh, talk about on your next comments at the end of your show or if you can make a show revolving this 
I had actually been thinking a lot about this before I just heard this last show about the mainstream media. Just uh, something that I wanted to know about, which was maybe if you could show us or give us uh, kind of examples or ideas of how to change things. Um, and what I mean is, I know that the first steps, um, I guess theoretically, would be to call our Congress people or call local politicians and uh, kind of express our opinions, express our likes and dislikes in order to get policies and uh, things like that changed. And uh, I've been contemplating whether or not to call and ask you about that already when I heard this show on the mainstream media and how I'm now listening to your comments and you're making a comment about the fact that, you know, we're getting the lowest common denominator because we don't demand anything better. So how do we pretty much go about demanding that? Is it as simple as picking up the phone and just whoever answers pretty much just say, hey, I don't like what you guys play on your shows. It's pretty much uh, BS. There's nothing uh, of substance and uh, we're not learning anything and we demand better. Same goes for politicians, calling them and just expressing whether we like or dislike certain policies that are being pushed through or um, requesting that other policies that aren't being pushed through be so. So um, if you could please maybe get back to me or uh, get back to us through your show. As far as taking real physical steps towards creating change, I think that would be great. I mean, I'm someone that's very interested um, in politics and uh, has been listening to your show for quite a while. And uh, even though I'm quite motivated to change things and have formulated a lot of opinions over the past few years about policies and, you know, regardless of the uh, partisanship or whatever, I, I, I think that taking that first step of actually creating change is one of the most difficult. So I would really appreciate that, Jay. Um, I think that'd be really cool. And looking forward to your response. Thanks a lot. Bye-bye. Thanks for listening, everyone. Thanks to the volunteers who helped gather clips to make this show possible, and thanks to all those who called into the voicemail line. If you would like to leave a comment, question, or activist call to action yourself to be played on the show, the number to dial is 202-999-3991. So uh, today I'm just going to respond to George from South Florida, the, the second message of the day, asking about you know what, what can we actually do uh, to make the world a better place. And you know, this is a, a question I've heard more than once. I... I absolutely recognize the importance of having information like that, content like that in the show. I wish I could do more of it. I have tried in the past. It's been sort of rocky. It is not my uh, strength, you, you might say. Um, you know, everything about the show, all the research I do for the show is always – the easiest way to say it is I'm always looking backwards. I'm always looking at things that have happened and what people – have already said about those things that have happened and people just don't often talk about what is going to happen in in the news shows that I listen to. So unfortunately that puts me in, in a tough position to promote activism, you know, what you can do, what you know, what big event is coming up uh, and, and things like that. I want to do more of it. I'm trying to do more of it. Uh, but in the meantime, I can give a, sort of a somewhat generic broad answer to George's question, which is similar to what my old boss used to say. He's the executive director of a climate change organization. And what he would say when he was encouraging people to support the fight against climate change was recognizing that 
Everyone has limited time and limited resources. You can only do so much. You only have so much to give. And so to make the most of your time and money and effort and everything, you should support that cause, which will have the greatest multiplier effect. And so he was arguing that you know when you fight climate change, you don't just fight climate change; you also fight uh, pollution, you also fight uh, you know asthma, you also fight cancers caused by coal-fired power plants, you also fight poverty, you also uh, you know encourage green jobs and stimulate the economy, and so on and so on. And, and he's absolutely right about all of that. And the only reason I am not still in the climate movement today is because I thought that as as important as climate change is, I think it is the most important political issue, the one thing that is stopping climate change action from happening is money in politics. I feel I feel like money in politics, uh, you know, corporate personhood and so on, the, the lack of campaign finance reform is like the cork in a champagne bottle. And if you can release that cork, then, uh, you know, just a cascade of more progressive policies will come rushing forth. I think that the policies coming out of the U.S. government are far, far, far to the right of the the desire of the citizens of this country. And so I think that fixing the financial system as it pertains to politics will allow the political system to more accurately reflect the will of the people, which, because of how far to the right we are now, will bring us further to the left and will include action on things like climate change. So whether whether your most important issue is climate change or like mine is you know money and politics and corporate personhood, you know just because I uh, only because I see it as a sort of an order of operations sort of a situation. Whatever issue you see that you are not only passionate about but that you see can have a multiplier effect that, that you feel that your time being spent on that issue. Will uh, will make the the best use of your time. That is what I recommend you work on. And so, if your issue is uh, climate change, for instance, we heard uh, 350.org mentioned in today's show. That is the the organization that I like to mention. It's the national and international organization that I think is doing the best job fighting climate change. And if your issue is corporate personhood and money and politics in America, then the organizations that I like who are working on that is the uh, the political action committee set up by the Young Turks, uh, you know, friends and neighbors here of the best of the left. They have set up wolf-pack, P-A-C, wolf-pack.com, and their entire reason for existence is to amend the Constitution to repeal the idea of corporate personhood, and the other organization is move-to-amend.org with essentially the exact same goal in mind. So... Those are a couple of causes and a couple of resources for you to check out if you want to get active. And uh, other than that, just do something that you not only feel passionate about, but that you recognize will make a difference. Because you know, putting effort into something and not seeing a result, not not feeling like you're making a, an impact, can be demoralizing. And and you don't want to get into the situation where you find yourself dispassionate about being active because of a bad experience you have. 
So those are my thoughts. Thanks to George for asking. If, if you have thoughts, please uh, share them. The number again, 202-999-3991. That is going to be it for today. Thanks to everyone for listening. Thanks especially to those who actually support the show by becoming a member or making one-time donations. That is absolutely how the program survives. If you are not already subscribed to the show, there are lots of ways to do it. Uh, everything from iTunes and the standard RSS feed to great apps that uh, actually let you subscribe to podcasts with your smartphone including uh, Stitcher, people love Stitcher, and there's even a Best of the Left app made specifically for the show for iPhone or Android. Stay tuned into the show between episodes by joining up with us on Facebook and Twitter. And for details on the show itself, including links to all the sources and music used in this and every episode, all that information is always posted in the show notes on the blog. So coming to you from inside the Beltway, yet outside the conventional wisdom of Washington, D.C., my name is Jay, and this has been the Best of the Left podcast, coming to you every third day, thanks entirely to the members and donors of the show from bestoftheleft.com. Upon a picture that wasn't right Pitch burning on a shining sheet The only maker that you want to be A dying man in a living room Whose shadow bases the floor